You guys can have a seat. Boy, it's great to be with you tonight. And I would say that some of us in the room needed to sing that reminder tonight to let God just still our soul and for us to be open to what he has to say to us tonight. A Texan by the name of Carl McCunn set out on a expedition of northern Alaska back in 1981. He hired a brush pilot, had himself dropped off with two rifles, a shotgun, about 1,500 pounds of provision, and 500 rolls of film, as his plan was to spend the next six, eight months going across Alaska, catching on film the beauty of that state. He set up his tent. He went about his expedition completely unaware that he had overlooked probably the most important detail of the entire trip. You know what that was? He made no arrangement for someone to come and pick him up. His mistake didn't dawn on him until August of that year. He was dropped off in March, and in August he recognized his mistake. We know this because of a 100-page loose-leaf diary that he left that was found the following February by Alaska State Troopers next to his body. Carl McCunn wrote, I think I should have used more foresight about arranging my departure. Every trip, every trip, every expedition comes to an end. The psalmist question, who can live and not see death? Or who can escape the power of the grave. Young and old, rich or poor, good and bad, every human being, every one of us needs a departure plan. This weekend, I ask you, what is yours? What is your plan for the end of your life? As we end this 52-week journey that we've been on through God's Word, from the book of Genesis to the very last book of the Bible, we come to the book of Revelation. Revelation is recorded to us by the Apostle John. If you're not finding your way there in your Bible, you should be now because you're going to need it. Revelation is found in the very back of your Bible. Please grab one and turn there with me. The same John who was with Jesus throughout his ministry. John, who stayed during the crucifixion at the very side of Jesus's mother, Mary. John, who raced to the tomb after learning that Jesus had risen from the dead. Well, at this point in John's life, he is the only remaining apostle alive, recorded around A.D. 90, his sentence, he was banished by the Roman government to the island of Patmos to spend his remaining days completely surrounded by water. It was like being on the set of a spiritual version of the movie Castaway. You remember that movie? But it was also a dark time. It was a challenging time for all believers as they faced what would be unparalleled persecution, not by the religious leaders as we see in the early church, but by the Roman government itself. But it was on this island that God visits John and gives him a clear vision of two things. He gives him a clear vision of the spiritual battle that's going on then and that continues today, that's going on behind 
the scenes. And he also gives them a clear vision of what was yet to come. Now, while the book of Revelation has amazing imagery, a description between the battle of good and evil, an amazing inside look of what heaven will be, I want you to understand tonight that the point, the point made by God through this revelation is that Jesus Christ is our only way through death and the grave. And we need to be ready for his return. And so the first point tonight is your takeaway for the entire weekend, and I say the point of the book of Revelation itself, and that is God's grace realized through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. His grace realized through a relationship with Jesus Christ secures our way home. Whether he returns before we die for us all, or we die and go to him, every human being needs a departure plan and we must look beyond the temporal, the temporary nature of this world and recognize that there's only one path home and that path is Jesus Christ. And so with that in mind, let's pray and then let's dive into this intimidating book. Father, thank you for this year. Thank you for the journey that we've made through your word together the insight that you've given us into yourself, your plan for our lives and your great grace and mercy and desiring to make a way for us to have relationship with you. And Lord, tonight as we turn to this final book in your word, may it stir within us a desire to know you more. Just as you say to John in the opening passages, may all who read this word tonight receive a blessing on their life. Thank you for your great grace that has opened the way for us to be at home with you. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, that made that way open for us that we pray. Amen. Well, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, I want you to read along with me. And let me just back up one more time. I'm only going to say it once. And that is of all the scripture that you have read this year. I beg you to open up your Bible right now and read these words because if you look in the opening paragraph that we're going to skip over, it says right there that just by reading these words, God has a blessing for your life. And so don't sit there with your hands in your pockets, unwilling to read the word of God with me. Revelation chapter 1 verse 12. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands representing the seven churches of Asia Minor. Now, I want to point out right away, because one of the things that keeps us out of this book of the Revelation, out of this book called Revelation, is exactly what we're getting ready to read right now. And it is all of this imagery it is all of this symbolism, and we get caught up in this. And in fact, some people have made it their mission in life to just hang out in the book of Revelation, thinking that they're going to become something themselves by explaining to all of us little people what it means. Don't get caught up in that. In fact, reading it alone, you will see that the symbolism is explained for us as we take our time and as we keep reading along. 
I saw seven golden lampstands, and see, it tells us what those stands represent. The seven churches of Asia Minor, the seven early churches that we're going to see each one in just a moment. And what do churches represent, people? Not buildings, but people, individuals, you and I. So who, who is getting ready to be addressed in this letter? You and I are being addressed by Jesus Christ himself. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Now, son of man is used throughout the Bible, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, long robe, golden sash across his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. Now, now I want you to think for just a minute. You, You hear these things, and all of a sudden you get this image, right? Now, I want you to think, if you were standing before the Son of God, how would you describe him? What features would you pick up on? I I can tell you for the younger folks in the room, they would be looking at his age. They would be looking to see if he was a contemporary or if he was someone much older. They would be looking at his wardrobe, right? Is is he wearing socks with his sandals or, or is it just his sandals, right? Those things that are very important. To us, older folks, we look for things like hair that looks like wool. Young people say, why would you want your hair to look like wool? My point is this. John is trying to put into human words the indescribable, all right? And that's what you're going to read much in the book of Revelation is the indescribable trying to be put into mere human words. Words And we're even more handicapped not understanding Greek, of which I have no desire, and I'm sure many of you don't either. We can barely get English right. But I want you to recognize that's all that's happening here. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. What's that remind you of? I'm not going to do this the whole night, but what is sharper than a double-edged sword? And what would be coming out of the Son of God's mouth? God's Word, right? Hebrew said sharper than any double-edged sword. Cut through the heart and the marrow, right? Gets to the core of the issue. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and hell. Wednesday evening, I came in from the office to only hear my youngest daughter talking to Sarah about this creature that she had read about in the book of Revelation that had eyes all over the outside of its body. Eyes in the front, eyes in the back, eyes inside, eyes outside. And and she said, that is the weirdest thing. She said, I'm going to have bad dreams tonight. And I just chuckled to myself. She was on day 258 of our F-260 reading plan. She was in chapter 3 of the book of Revelation that describes these four living creatures before the throne of God that that John goes into such a description about. My point is the book of Revelation, it comes to us with all these 
number references, symbols, sounds, and crazy images, some of which the meaning is obvious, some of which is not so obvious. But don't get distracted and miss the main event. The main event is this, and that is that at the end, we will be with God and God will be with us. You see, those seven lampstands, those seven churches, the multitudes of people, the living creatures, who is in the middle of it all? Who is right there with them? He is. Jesus is. And this is the point. Everyone, every living person and dead person, all people will someday appear before God. And it will either be a scary event for you or it will be a wonderful one depending on the choice that we make today. Jesus gives us a visual image of the reality that this life on earth isn't all that there is. We don't live some 60, 70, 80 years and then cease to exist. But we will all one day appear before the Lord. Hebrews 9.27 reminds us it is appointed to every man once to die and then the judgment. Now for the unbeliever, the unprepared, it will be a long, draining, depressing reminder. A fearful reminder of a life of a life filled with self-centered, self-gratifying choices. But for the Christian, it will be an awe-inspiring celebration of the reality that we are finally home. Chapter 4, verse 1. Among the first things that John sees is the throne of God. He writes, After I looked, after this I looked, and there was a door standing open before me in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And so right here in the middle of heaven, in the middle of the universe, if you will, is the throne with God sitting on it. And eyes, I submit to you, aren't drawn to the beauty of heaven, but every eye is drawn to him. God is there. But if, but I want you to see something else, and that is God has a place for you there if you've chosen his son, Jesus Christ. John begins describing the gates of pearl, the streets of gold, the walls of sapphire, the river flowing through the city. He also goes into great detail about what won't be there. No more crying. No more pain. No more arguments or anger. No more anxiety or depression. No more bipolar disorder or addiction, tumors or treatments. No more blind eyes or deaf ears, no more pink slips from the boss or tear-stained divorce papers, no more flag-draped caskets. Why? Because now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Who does the Bible say will wipe away their tears? Your tears and mine when we get to heaven. Who? God. God will. It won't be an angel. It won't be a saint. It won't be Mary. Jesus Christ himself will raise his nail-pierced hands and wipe the tears from your eyes and mine. There are no words for that. John describes all of this and more. But here's the challenge. Here in this world, there are a lot of things that are fighting for our attention. You see, I think that's part of the symbolism of the book of Revelation. All of these things fighting for our attention, just like what we are up against today. We see this description of heaven, and all we can focus on is the millennial. All we can focus on is the rapture. All we can focus on is the great white throne judgment. All we can focus on. And yet the focus of our attention is to be on him. God's chosen to give us a glimpse of heaven because he doesn't want us to miss heaven for the world and for all the distractions that we have. Now, through the middle section of the book of Revelation, John is given great detail about how this world will end. Detail about the judgment of the world that includes that of the prince of this world known as Lucifer or Satan and his angels who for all this time have been allowed limited power, been allowed to roam the earth. Oh, he can't rule your mind. He can't see your heart the way that God can, but he does have significant influence and power. But in the end, he will be thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, hell, where he and his demons and those who go along with him will be tormented for the end and for the rest of time, forever and ever, Revelation says. He describes this series of devastation poured down the earth, the mark of the beast, the climatic battle of Armageddon, the reign of the Lord, the great white throne judgment. But it is the victor, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is to grab our attention throughout the detail that's often overwhelming and beyond our ability to comprehend. It's there for us to have certainty as Christians. In fact, that's why we're given a glimpse of heaven, is that those who have confessed Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, we have nothing to fear from God's judgment. When someone asks you your opinion about the book of Revelation, I encourage you to form one. And I'm 55 years old, and I'm not for sure that I've totally formed one yet. And part of that is because I am so satisfied from what I do know from the book of Revelation that I don't have to worry about those details. Because as a Christian, I will be secure in the arms of Jesus Christ. And so what I'm concerned with are those right now that are outside of a relationship with him who are not secure 
And that's where I choose to focus my attention because the judge is on my side. Is he on yours? From the first chapter of Genesis all the way through the 21st chapter and 22nd chapter of the book of Revelation, we see consistently, we've seen consistency this year, than in every book and chapter that God's desire is to redeem us and reconcile us to a right relationship with himself. That has never changed. That has never been his second plan. That has never been a detour. His purpose has never changed. And through this glimpse of heaven, we should be reassured once again that God will keep his word, that we will be there. And we will be with him. But I'll tell you where I do want to spend a few minutes. Because there is one thing that John reveals to us in Revelation that isn't hard to understand at all. But I have to tell you, it's the thing that has given me the most trouble as I have studied. And especially as I prepared this week for tonight. And the thing that causes me trouble is found in chapters 2 and 3. In these two chapters, Jesus addresses seven literal churches that existed at the time John was recording Revelation. And there's a lot of speculation about those churches, but they they are real churches. You can go back and you can read about those churches in the book of Acts and in many of the letters that follow. They were real churches, real people. And yet Jesus spends a significant amount of time addressing each one of those churches and the spiritual dilemma that they were facing. In fact, five out of the seven, he uses the word, but I hold these things against you. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to reach the end and realize that I have neglected that something that is very important to our Savior And as I read these, some of these hit a little close to home. See if they don't hit close to home to you. And let's make the focus of this last message of the year to be one of growing and making adjustments where necessary. He begins with the church in Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 3. Notice he begins with a word of encouragement. He always does. He says, you have persevered and you have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. And I could say the same thing about this church here. Of all the churches in southern Indiana, these last three years, you guys have persevered. You, as far as I'm concerned, have stood the test. You see, three years ago, that was a test. That's all it was. It was a test to see if we really believe what we profess we believe, to see if we will really be faithful to the things that we believe God's word say are the most important. And many did not persevere, but many of you did. And that's what Jesus is saying about the church in Ephesus. You have persevered and you have endured hardships for my name and you have not grown weary yet. (laughs) I hold this against you. He says, you have forsaken your first love. What's he talking about? If we've done the right things, if we've checked the right boxes, if we have persevered, what's he talking about? He's talking about our heart. 
He's talking about the reason why. He's talking about our motivation. He's talking about our gratitude. He's talking about our affection for him. Not a cause. Not our own identity. But him. Some of you remember the day you first surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. While I grew up a Christian, many in this room, thank God, did not. And the reason why I say thank God is because the problem with churches today is that all we do is trade people between each other, and we're not going after those who are outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's not what we're here for. And many of you in this room, I am so grateful that you recognize the need for Jesus Christ, no matter what age in your life. But the older that you are, when you come to a relationship with Christ, especially after you've lived on the edge of hell and lived like hell, then you realize what a significant change he can bring to your life. And so I call on you tonight to remember the day that you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. I want you to think about the zeal. I want you to think about the excitement, the gratitude that you had. The realization that you could not wait to tell someone else about him, even if it was your own family. You see, sometimes through the hardships of life, and this was the case for the church in Ephesus, they've been through some hard times. We've been through some challenging times as a people. And while we're faithful and persevere, we can sometimes forget that the reason why we love God is because he first loved us. We sometimes forget what a tragedy our life would be outside of him, especially those of us who grew up in the church, who feel like we really haven't lived like hell. Listen, we were as destined for hell as the worst person out there was, were it not for Jesus Christ. I thought about this Christmas season. This, this was one of the nicest Christmas seasons that me and I think most of the staff, I haven't gotten to talk to Dan and some of the others, but I think this was the best out of 17 years this was the best Christmas season because for once, even though we've had five deaths in the last six days and I just finished my third, my fourth funeral this week, even though we were physically exhausted, we were ready to go and we loved our time here with God's people. But I ask you, were you finding yourself frustrated after a busy Christmas season of serving? Be careful. Be careful that you yourself are not forsaking your first love. John reminds us to never stop pursuing Christ with a loving devotion. We love him because he first loved us. In verse 10, he addresses the church in Smyrna and warns them of the persecution they will suffer. 
He warns them of the persecution they will suffer. And you're like, oh, we're experiencing persecution. We, we really aren't. <laughs> what we're experiencing today is the reality that you and I have been so passive as Christians that the world now walks all over the truth. But he addresses Smyrna in the persecution that they were suffering and that they will suffer. But he says, remain faithful so that the crown of life awaits them, waits you at the end. And we know that persecution is real. We can see the world ramping up for it around us right now. A mom from our church community was recently called to the local school because her elementary age child was visibly praying at the lunch table and someone reported it. Can you imagine? Let me just put it this way. If you as a Christian parent were called to your public school for which you pay taxes for, if you were called to the school office and the principal says, excuse me, Dave, but your daughter was seen praying at the lunch table. What would your response be? My, my response would be, well, was she disrupting other students? Was she being rude? No. Well, can you describe what she was? Yes, she had her head bowed. She was moving her lips. Some, some kids thought that they heard her say, thank you, God. What would your response be? I'll tell you what the mother's response was. Don't you ever call me again telling me that you want to see me because my daughter was praying at the table. Praise God she prays. My friends, we are to remain faithful to the end even when we suffer for it. That's the message that Jesus is giving to the church in Smyrna, and that's the message that he's giving to us today. You better be ready, because it's already going on around you. And I can tell you this, as your pastor, I will come and stand next to you, but I shouldn't have to. I'll be glad to, because I'm not gonna tolerate that in the community that I live, and neither should you. In verse 14, he addresses the church in Pergamum who'd remained faithful in persecution, but they had turned a blind eye to sin within the church and the Lord was calling them to repent. Some of you are disappointed. You really thought I was going to explain the millennial and whether we should be awe, post, or pre. I'm pro. I'm just for it. Come, Lord Jesus, come. <laughs> I'm sorry you're disappointed. You thought maybe we're going to break out an explanation of the living creatures. And all the, sorry, you're in the wrong place. They had turned a blind eye to sin within the church. Tell me, tell me, church, that we are not a church like Pergamum. P please tell me. It was... Uh, really disappointing about a year or so ago when one of the staff came and told me that a family was leaving our church because they didn't feel like they could bring their friends who are struggling with homosexuality because their pastor addressed it too frequently from the pulpit. 
I have not always done the best job at being the most sensitive person. I get frightened for you students when I see you coming from homes that do not teach you the truth about your identity. Homes that have accepted into it things that will damage you and that will leave you with anxiety, a misunderstanding about who you are. I admit I have not done the best job and I've repented of that and I am working more diligently than ever to make sure that I use good words and to use good tone. But my friends, we cannot be a church that turns a blind eye to sinful behavior. Whether we're talking about homosexuality or heterosexual sin, where a man and woman are living together outside of marriage, where teenagers are sexually active outside of marriage, where we disrespect a person of the opposite sex or of a different race. We will not tolerate this and we will not be quiet and preach only God's love and grace because God's love and grace is there to stand against the sin in all of our lives. And we must recognize what sin is so that we can be repentant of it and receive his grace and his forgiveness. Now what is sad about that situation is because a family decided to neglect the truth of God, to go to a church like Pergamum where everything goes, where they can be loved and encouraged in their sexual identity, whatever it is. An entire family fell away from the church. You see what I mean? The book of Revelation holds some challenge for us today. And the message to Pergamum is repent for the sin that you've turned a blind eye to in your life. To the church at Sardis, he says, wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come for you. I am so grateful that we are not a church that rests in the past in what has been accomplished, but that we consistently go after those who have yet to be awakened to their need for God. This is our focus, church, and I am so proud of you. I'm so proud that not one of you comes and complains to me about the spots that are on the car. I heard somebody dump over a gallon of coffee over here just a minute ago. (laughs) And that, listen, that is going to be a huge, huge mess but you take up these chairs and you will find hundreds of huge messes. But thank God, 
Thank God that there's a hundreds of messes sitting in these chairs. I remember, <laughs> I remember my first three years, I remember the secretary of the church coming in to the elders meeting. She used to sit in on the elders meeting, which was a mistake to start with. But she came into the elders meeting with a trash can full of McDonald's cups. Now, the month before, she had counted the communion cups that were empty because she was so pleased that for the first time, this church had crossed, I don't know, maybe it was 150, 175 people that weekend. And, and she, she counted the cups just so that we could be accurate in watching what God was doing. But then the next month, she brings in a trash can full of McDonald's cups. And one by one, I had to sit there. This is why people don't want to be in church leadership. One by one, she took out each McDonald's cup and she sat on the table and she said, now count those cups. All right, there's 26 of them. What's the point? Those cups were in the worship center. I said, great, <laughs> great. Because with every one of those cups was a young person that wouldn't have been here five years earlier. Because you're too worried about the McDonald's cups and not worried about the souls of people in the community. And that's what Jesus is telling here. Remember what you've received and finish strong. Don't start resting in where you've been and what's happened. That's why these churches around here look like the cemeteries taking over the indoors. And they wonder why because you got to have a little grace for McDonald's cups and the mess that comes with messy people. <coughs> Jesus addresses other churches, including Laodicea, who was lukewarm. You've heard about that one. Philadelphia, to whom he simply implores to keep going. But listen to this. The point is this. God is very much aware of how each one of us are responding to his grace. Did you hear me? He's very much aware of how you and I individually are responding to his grace. That's what he's looking for in his church. And we need to understand the significance of our lives in his plan for the world to know his grace. And the bottom line is, is that God doesn't want anyone to miss out on home. He didn't want you to miss it, and he doesn't want the people that are yet to come to miss out on that. He wants us home. And that's why he makes it such an effort in the book of Revelation for us to, number one, see what home looks like. And I want to go there. Not because of the streets of gold, I could care less, or the sapphire gates, but I want to go there because my wife's going to be there and my girls are going to be there. My parents are going to be there, but most of all, my king is going to be there, and I'm going to get to stand face to face with him, not just for a mere 70 or 80 years, but for all of eternity. Now, poor old Carl McComb, realizing that he hadn't made arrangements to be picked up from his journey to Alaska, he was soon out of food, he was out of strength, and he was out of optimism. And one of his final diary entries read, this is sure a slow and agonizing way to die. Isolated with no rescue. Trapped with no exit. Nothing to do but wait for the end. 
But it didn't have to be this way, did it? It didn't have to be this way for him, and it doesn't have to be this way for you or for anyone else in this world. The Bible, remember the first chapter? It began with an invitation. And that invitation was Adam and Eve walking in the cool of the day, unimpeded, undistracted, with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the Bible ends with the same invitation in Revelation chapter 22 when he says, behold, I'm coming. My reward is with me. And I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to you to give you this testimony for the churches. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Christmas Eve. <laughs> Christmas Eve, we started out the five o'clock service with Travis Whaley responding to that very invitation and surrendering his life to Jesus Christ in baptism, securing his way home. And what do we say to Travis? Welcome home, Travis. Welcome home. <clears throat> and I want you to know that no matter where you've been, no matter what you came in here with, that the invitation is open for you. God wants you home. God wants you in heaven with him. God wants to spend eternity with you. And the only way that that can happen is through surrendering your life to Jesus Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who says, if you are thirsty for home, if you need a plan, don't worry, right? If I go and prepare a place for you, he said in John 14, I will come and take you with me that you too may be where I am. If you haven't made that decision tonight, this invitation is for you to come and receive him. If you've been living life on your own outside of the fellowship of a Bible-believing, teaching church, then you come home and be part of this family. If you want someone to pray with you about the concerns in your life, the things that go boo in the night, the things that have left you wondering if you've done the right things, if you've responded the right way, if someone's gonna be there for you in the end, then you come. David's gonna be at the next steps area I'm going to be right up here. But you come as we sing about that day when we stand before our king. Stand with me and let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word.
Thank you for getting us through your word this year from cover to cover. And God, I do pray. I pray that it has changed us. I know that for the staff and I, we have seen things in your word this year from a perspective that we've never seen before. And that's simply because your word is alive and active. It's the same word that we've read over and over again. But Father, every day you bring new perspective and we're grateful for that. I pray tonight that new perspective has been brought to those who have listened. I pray for those who have opened their Bibles tonight and read your word and according to your promise that you are blessing them and that you are opening up their hearts and their minds to what you have for them. Father, we are grateful that we are not on this planet alone without rescue, but that you have sent Jesus Christ that we can know for certain that you will return for us yourself. Whether we see you come in the clouds collectively for us as followers, or whether we come to you as so many of our friends and family have gone to you even this week, Lord. May we leave this place tonight assured of the reality of home with you. We love you, and we know that it's only by your grace that we're saved. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.